If you haven't noticed, uh, they're doing major construction right out here. And by right out here, I mean like literally just on the other side of that wall. And you can hear it a little bit. We did go and ask, I think, if they would stop. And so we're praying two things. A, that they stop, which if you've ever been on any kind of construction deal and deadlines and do this by this day, you know that the reality of that is probably really, really small. Uh, But we've asked either that they stop. We're asking God that they would stop, which sounds like they've not yet gone on board with that. Or that God would make it so that it doesn't matter to us, that we're not distracted by it, that it just doesn't matter. It's not even worth talking about. So that's our prayer and our hope. And we believe God can do one or two of those things, either that they'll stop in Jesus's name or that it won't matter. But we're in First Peter chapter 5. Chapter 5 starts with Peter encouraging those who lead churches, those who have leadership positions in churches, how they should treat the church, how they should treat people that they're leading. And verse 5 in the second half, it starts like this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What if this morning, what if the attitude with which you approached life was securing for you and was securing for me everything that you could ever want, but at the same time was cutting you off from everything that you need? What if the way you approached your life, the attitude, the heart, the ambition, what if the way you approached your life secured for you most of the things that you want? Of course, we all want more. The, most, the wealthiest person in here could still use more. The poorest person in here could still use more. Uh, that's just a part of our human nature. But what if the way you approached your life secured for you most of the things that you want? But at the very same time of giving you everything that you could ever want, it actually cut you off and prevented you from having everything that you need. I think that's what we're going to see in the scripture today, because Peter is putting side by side these two ideas, pride and humility. Pride is reaching for what you want to be yours. Pride is climbing some kind of ladder. Pride is securing for yourself. Pride is protecting for yourself. Pride is what enables us to get everything that we want. But humility is the door to everything that you need. And everything that I need. That's why we have full bellies but anemic souls. That's why we have uh, full calendars but anemic marriages and families. That's why we have a full contact list on your phone but you have anemic relationships because pride gets you everything that you want but only humility gets us the things that we need. And it would be sad to get to the end of our life and say, I had everything that I wanted, but I had very little of what actually mattered. So this is what Peter says in the second half of verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now that phrase, clothe yourself, it's got a word picture attached to it of somebody putting on an apron, which is so powerful because Peter in his lifetime has seen somebody show incredible humility and put on an apron. I want you to see it. You'll be familiar with it. John chapter 13. Turn there quickly. John chapter 13. Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. It's what we call the Last Supper. 
In the middle of this meal, this is what happens. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So picture this scene. And if you're familiar with it, don't just kind of put it in some kind of like religious story. I've heard that before. I know how it ends up. But, but picture yourself in this room. A small room filled with Jesus and his closest followers. They're celebrating the Passover meal, which was a meal that the Jewish people would celebrate every year. They would eat every year. And as they eat it, it would remind them the story of how God delivered them out of their their forefathers out of slavery in Egypt. And so they're there celebrating this holy meal together. They're in the room. They're sitting down at their table would have been about our knee height. So they would have actually sat on the ground, kind of reclined backwards to have their conversations The room is filled with a lot of different conversations, just like if you were having a party, exactly how it would go. And in the midst of the supper, in the midst of all these different conversations, Jesus stands up. Again, the table is low, people are sitting on the ground, so it would have been a stark contrast as he stood up from the meal. And he takes off his outer robe, and he picks up a towel, wraps it around his waist, gets some kind of pitcher, and he moves from disciple to disciple, man to man, and he kneels down on the ground. He picks up their dirty, disgusting feet and cleans them off in his lap. Just picture yourself there in the room. You can feel the uncomfortableness of that moment, especially since it's Jesus. I mean, that's a task task that most of us common people would have had to do ourselves. We would have washed our own feet before we would have come into the house. Or if we were in the house of a very wealthy person, they may have had a servant. And it wouldn't just have been any servant. It would have been the lowest servant who would have been required to wash the feet. But here's Jesus doing it. And just so we have the contrast, I want you to turn a few pages to the left to Mark chapter 9. Just so we have in our mind exactly who Jesus is as he's... In humility, kneeling before them. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And it says, After six days, Jesus took uh, with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured or transformed before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So what is happening is the veil is being pulled back on top of this mountain. Jesus is on this mountain with just Peter, James, and John, just three of his closest, most trusted disciples. And the veil is being pulled back. We're seeing Jesus as he really is. He came in humility to earth, wrapped on human flesh. But now we're getting a little picture of what Jesus would be like with all of his glory in heaven. He's radiating. He's transformed. He's transfigured. And then look what happens. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Little parentheses here. If you don't know what to say, don't talk. It's usually a good rule of thumb. 
If you don't know what to say in a moment, probably best to not say anything. That's not what Peter did. And look what happens to him. He gets rebuked out of heaven. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Jesus is transformed before them. Their very eyes are seeing what it must have been like for him to be in heaven. And then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appears. Now, Elijah and Moses for the Jewish people, that's as awesome as it gets. That's as high as it gets. The way we think about our founding fathers, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, even Abraham Lincoln a little bit later, um, doesn't hold a candle to the way they would have thought of Moses and Elijah. And so in Peter's mind, he thinks, wow, this is amazing. Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. It's like the three, the three you know, highest people now. It's our Jesus, the one that we followed, the one that called us off of the shore of Galilee. It's our Jesus and it's Moses. I mean, it's Moses, the lawgiver, Moses, Mount Sinai, Moses, Exodus, Moses, and it's Elijah. But then the voice comes out of heaven to rebuke Peter as if to say, no, it's not Jesus, Moses. And Elijah, it's not the three of them. It's the one of them. This is my beloved son, Moses, great. Elijah, great, not Jesus. And it's this Jesus who has gotten down on his knees and picked up your dirty, disgusting, worn feet. And is cleaning them off in his lap. And it's uncomfortable for the disciples. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not, you're not going to serve me that way. If anything, we should be serving you. You can't wash our feet, Jesus. We should be the one washing your feet. It's amazing how your humility will pull out the humility in somebody else. And I want you to notice why Jesus is able to do this back in John chapter 13. It starts by saying three things. First, in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Second, and that he had come from God. And third, he was going back to God. So Jesus knew three things that enabled him, even in all of his glory, even in all of his majesty, even all, in all of his splendor, to get down and wash these disciples' feet. He knew three things. He knew, that, he knew what God had given him. He knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going. Those same three things are what will, will be what enables us to, in humility, serve other people. you got to know what God has given you. I mean, it's a long list. We could spend the rest of the day listing out all the things that God has given you. He's given you eternal life. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you hope. He's given you peace. He's given you future He's given you the right to be called a son of God or a daughter of God. You've got to know what he has given you. And you've got to know where you've come from. That you came from God. He is the beginning of your story. And you've got to know what happened after that. In all of your strength and weakness. Your story in all of its splendor and all of its failure. You've got to know where you've come from. And you've got to know what your future is. And again, your future could be a long list. But just from what we know in the scripture, your future is heaven. Your future is eternal life. Your future is forever in the presence of God. Your future is Jesus building a, a place for you in his father's house. 
And when you know those things, and I don't mean when you know them in your mind or when you know them right now, but when you know them when it matters, when you know them on a Wednesday at 2 o'clock, then you have the confidence to actually go low in humility. See, insecurity is the enemy of humility. You cannot be humble and insecure at the same time. We get it confused a lot on the outside. We'll look at somebody and we'll say, well, that's a really humble person. The truth is, is they may just be really insecure. I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. Uh, I'm not worthy to be in this circle. I'm not worthy to be in this job. Why, why am I not getting a promotion? I'm always the lowest person. But insecurity is just pride in another form. Because anytime you're me, 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 I, 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 it's impossible to think about anybody else. And so Jesus' humility pulls out the humility in Peter. And then fast forward 30 years, back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look how Peter applies this. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And so Peter, or Peter wants us to serve one another in humility. Which means we have to retrain our minds to think with humility. It does not happen by accident. You don't wake up in the morning humble. In fact, we wake up in the, in the morning as in love with ourselves as we are at any point in the day. As consumed with ourselves as we are at any point in the day. You're not humble on purpose. And so we have to retrain our minds. And we retrain our minds to view the situations that we're put in, not to how that situation can serve us, build us up, but how we can use that situation to serve somebody else. You sit in a cubicle every day next to another person who sits in a cubicle, next to another person who sits in a cubicle, and on down. As far as your eyes can see, nothing but cubicles. And what do we do most of those days? We think about how that cubicle and that situation at work is going to be used to serve you. Paycheck promotion, affirmation, love, acceptance. How all those people in that room full of cubicles can somehow build you up. That's what we do in our human natural instinct. But what if we retrained our mind according to Jesus and we used that situation to be humble and use that cubicle and use your workplace to serve and build up the people around you. I'm a routine guy. I love routines, patterns. I like to do the same thing every single day if I'm able to. I like to put everything like in the exact same place. It makes me happen, happy. So I'm, I call myself a routine guy. Other people call me something more clinical, I think. Um, <laughs> but every day on my way to work, I, I do the exact same thing. I drive the same place. I, get, I stop and get the same breakfast. The, the lady that I order the breakfast from, she rolls in, sees my car, knows exactly what I'm going to order. Uh, the same thing every day. And so on Friday, I w- I've been thinking about this all week and thinking about how in most situations I put myself in, I am the center of that situation no matter what. Even if somebody else is more important in the room than me, really, in my mind, I'm the most important person in the room always. That's the way my natural human thinking is. And so every day on my way to work, I, I use that situation to serve me. I get the same breakfast because it makes me happy. I drive the same place because it makes me happy. I listen to the same radio program because it makes me happy. And anytime there's an interruption in that routine, what happens? I get incredibly frustrated. And I'd be ashamed to say how frustrated I get just when my little routine is, is messed up. But I've been thinking about this all week. And I'm in the midst of that routine and I, I drive by a gas station um, and I see... Somebody using a payphone, which was odd because when was the last time you saw somebody use a payphone? 
And so just in you know, a, just a few seconds after I pass, I'm wondering what his story is and why he's using a payphone. And it's in the morning and I just start piecing together and, and thinking and coming up with theories about why he's there using that payphone. You know, is he lost? Is he, was he on his way to work and, and he's supposed to have some work out there and, and he's lost and now he's using a payphone to call his boss and figure out where he's supposed to be? What will happen if he doesn't end up there? So I'm thinking about all these hypothetical situations and I was thinking about this, how instead of using situations to serve myself, I should use situations to be humble and serve somebody else. And so I didn't want to, I'll be honest. I wanted to finish with my routine, but just the prompting from the Holy Spirit to turn around. And so I turned around, I pulled into the gas station and I just handed them my phone and I said, instead of flushing quarters away down the you know, toilet, why don't you just use my phone and you can take care of whatever you've got to take care of. And he came over and used my phone. But I'd be ashamed to tell you how far I had to drive before I actually turned around. Because I'm used to using situations and circumstances to serve me. But what Peter is urging us today is to go low in humility. And listen, for some of us, it's a long journey to the lowest place. Some of us are so used to thinking of ourselves as so exalted and high and important. It is a long, painful walk to a place of humility. But Peter is urging us that in humility, we would serve each other. And look at the motivation he gives. It's an important motivation. Verse 5 still. God, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When it says that God opposes the proud, it means he resists the proud. It means he frustrates the proud. It means if you and I are prideful today, and listen, pride has a thousand different faces. Pride is not just bragging all the time. you got that person that you work with that just brags all the time, like every story is about how awesome they are, and you know as soon as they open their mouth, you know where this story is going, that everyone should bow down and worship their awe. You know, I mean, you know, you've got those people, and we think of them as prideful. We never think of ourselves as prideful, but pride has a thousand different faces. Pride, in one sense, is just the refusal to hu- humble yourself, the refusal to be humiliated, the refusal to not save face. Pride has a thousand different forms. But if you and I, listen, and I'm telling you, I'm driving the train this morning in pride. There is nobody in the room more uh, capable of being prideful than me. And if God finds me prideful this morning, what the scripture says is he opposes me. And he resists me today. What if we carried pride with us in the room this morning and then we went to sing songs to God? And listen, you really meant those songs? You believe that God is the one true God? You believe that God should be praised just like we're singing this? What if you really meant those songs but because you had pride in your heart, Jesus just stiff-armed them? And they never got to him because of the pride in your heart. It says he will oppose and resist and frustrate the prideful. You may be in a situation in your life right now where you really want something and you're doing everything that you know to get a hold of it, but it just seems like God is working against you. He's almost going out of his way to prevent you from having that thing. Listen, in some cases, it just 
may mean that it's just not God's will for you to have that thing. Or it could be that because of the pride in your heart, God is actually working against you. He is trying to frustrate your plans and my plans because of the pride in our hearts. But look at the good news. The good news is God gives grace to the humble. And God is so passionate about giving us grace this morning that he will do whatever it takes to humble you and humble me so that we are in a position to receive that grace. God is faithful enough to not leave us in a prideful state so that he can give us the grace that he wants to give us. It's all through the scripture, the people that God has humbled. It is a long, long list. You think of in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt enslaving the Israelites. He refuses to bow his heart, to bend his heart to God's way. He's prideful. And so God brings plague after plague after plague after plague until finally Pharaoh relents. You think about um, Israel. After they're led out of Egypt, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And the scripture says that they spent 40 years in the wilderness. God wanted them in there for two reasons. One, to test them, to test their faithfulness. And number two, to humble them. Uh, you think about King Manasseh. Uh, king Manasseh was a king of Israel and he was so prideful and so against God. He was a, a king of Israel, God's people, but he was so against God that he went into the temple of God where only the one true God should be worshipped. And he sets up this idol for all the people to worship this false God. And he refuses to humble himself. He refuses to change. And so the next paragraph in the scripture is Manasseh being led by the Babylonians back to Babylon in shackles like a common prisoner. God humbled him. And then the, the most amazing case of God humbling somebody in the whole world is Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And he, God had warned him that if he remained prideful about all that God had given him, that he was going to experience the consequences. But King Nebuchadnezzar didn't pay any attention. And King Nebuchadnezzar actually stood up, looked over his whole land, and he said, look at Babylon, which I have built, and which displays my majesty and splendor. And the next part of King Nebuchadnezzar's story, according to a dream that he had been given, was King Nebuchadnezzar is out living in the wilderness like a wild animal. He eats grass like a cow, he begins to sprout feathers and claws like a bird. And he lives as a madman, an anomaly in his humiliation out in the wilderness because of the pride in his heart. Listen, God is able to humble us. And he will humble us if we do not humble ourselves. And better to humble ourselves and receive grace than to be humbled by him so we can receive grace. But he is so passionate about you and I receiving his grace that he will do what it takes to make sure that you bend your knee and your heart. And then look what Peter says, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So he says, if you humble yourselves, God will exalt you. 
Now, the exalting that Peter is talking about is when Jesus is revealed. When Jesus returns, then these people that he's talking to, they're going to be exalted. If you remember their context, and we talked about that in detail last week, these people that Peter is writing to in what is now Turkey in the first century, they're experiencing persecution because of their faith in Jesus, hostility because of their faith in Jesus. And so what Peter is saying to them is, listen, you keep being humble. Even as people are pressing you down, you keep being humble because when Jesus is revealed, you're going going to be vindicated. These people are hurting you, harming you, ostracizing you, pressing against you because of Jesus. Just wait until Jesus is revealed and you will be lifted up. They will acknowledge that you were right and they were wrong. That's the lifting up that he's talking to, talking about. Now there may be other kinds of lifting up if you humble yourself. If you humble yourself today, God may lift you up at work. You may get a promotion. You humble yourself, God may open up your bank account. Uh, If you humble yourself, God may give you favor with your neighbors or friends or whatever situation you need. It's possible and God is able to lift us up here in this lifetime. But what Peter would urge us is even if you have humbled yourself and even if God has lifted you up in this lifetime, don't hold on to it so tightly because when you lift it up on this planet one day, you can be down the next. But hold on to the exaltation that won't be taken away from us, the lifting up that won't be taken away from us, which is the return of Jesus when we get to be lifted up next to him. And so then he compares these two things. Or he sets side by side these two things. That we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and that he cares for us. And they only work for us this morning because they're side by side. So he wants us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Um, Anytime in the scripture that God's hand is referred to, especially when it's described as mighty or strong, it's referred to God coming in a saving way. That he comes in salvation. In fact, you'll see in the Old Testament it it will say with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It means God is coming to the rescue. And so Peter is encouraging us to humble ourselves under God's saving hand. Which I think is really important. Because humility is hard. Pride is easy. Anybody can be prideful. But only certain people are able to be humble. Humble, humility is not a natural thing to anybody. You don't just stumble into humility on accident. And so some of us, I think this morning, because it's hard to be humble, are thinking, I'm afraid because what if I do choose to go low? What if I choose to begin to use situations in humility to serve other people and not serve myself? Maybe I'll be taken advantage of. Maybe I'll be passed over. Maybe I'll miss out on some opportunities. Especially if you work in a very competitive environment, And the thought of you humbling yourself to serve other people while you know everyone else in your workplace, everyone else in your industry is only going to be working to serve themselves. The thought of you trying to serve somebody else and not serve yourself and being in that environment is incredibly terrifying. Am I going to miss out on opportunity? Am I going to miss out on promotion? Am I going to miss out on a financial reward? But what God is asking us is to humble ourselves under his mighty hand of salvation. That it's his strong hand that we're coming underneath in the list of people he has saved and protected and taken care of as long. You think about the Israelites. He delivered them out of slavery. A whole people group in slavery. He just delivered them out with his hand through signs and wonders. 
they got out onto the wilderness. They didn't have any water. It's the desert. He caused water to flow out of the middle of a rock. They get into the promised land finally, but there's this huge city, this fortified city of Jericho. And he saves them by having them march around it a few times and then yell, and then he pushes down the walls and saves them. David with Goliath, you think it was a little sling and some stones that saved David in front of Goliath and the people of Israel? No, it was the mighty hand of God. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because of his faithfulness. They go in the morning expecting him to not even be there because the lions will have devoured his carcass. And there Daniel is, whole and healthy and alert because the hand of God has shut the mouth of the lions. Also in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to worship a statue. They refused to worship an idol. So they got thrown into this burning furnace, which was so hot that it burned up the people who threw them in the furnace. And yet they walk around untouched and unscathed. It's the mighty hand of God who does that. And so he is a safe place to humble yourself underneath. You don't have to worry about all of your opportunities. You don't have to worry about what you're going to miss out on if you humble yourself because he is able to save and his track record is long. And if you doubt, just start with yourself that he was able to, with his mighty hand, send Jesus who took away your sin and opened eternal life for those who believe. And also I think it's really important that the only hand that he's asking you to come underneath is his. He's not asking you to come humble yourself under anybody else's hand. Just his. Yeah, you need to be humble before other people. You need to be treat people with humility. But it's his hand that you're going underneath. And what's so powerful about that is what it says here. In this last verse, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What a powerful picture that not only does God have a mighty hand, but he cares for us. He loves us. Not only does he want to do strong things in us and before us, he wants to do the caring things in us and before us us. You're not lost to him today. He's not just some God up there who performs signs and wonders and does miracles from a million miles away, but he's well acquainted with you and he cares for you. And because he cares for you, look what Peter urges us to do. Casting all your anxieties on him. Uh, Anxiety is another way to say worry things that you care about, the things that are heavy on your heart right now. And he wants us to cast those, which means literally to throw those onto God because he cares for us. You know, pride is what feeds worry. Pride feeds worry because how do we think of ourselves? We think of ourselves as problem solvers, right? We think of ourselves as people who can fix things. One of my favorite radio programs is on Saturday mornings here. It's a local deal and people call into this home improvement professional and, and they're asking him home improvement questions because they're going to do it themselves, you know. And, and some guys you're listening to on the phone talk to this professional about all the big projects that they're going to take on. And you just want to say, like, 
brother, don't, don't take that on yourself because I've listened to you for 10 seconds and I already know that you don't know what you're talking about. You're probably going to blow your house up if you try to do that. Don't mess with the gas. Just leave the gas on. Pick up the phone call. Don't call this guy. Call somebody else. They'll come and fix it. You know, but, but nobody likes to think of themselves like that, right? Like every man in here, if you own a home, right, don't you want to be the one to fix stuff? Right? Your wife may have beaten you down already. You know I'm not the fixer in our family. We just, we just pick up the phone and make a phone call. Right? But we want to be problem solvers. When your kids have problems, what do you want to do? You want to fix your kids' problems. I'm all, we're all the time asking Jackson what's going on at school because maybe we can fix it. Maybe we can tweak it a little bit. Maybe we can send an email to the teachers. We're just problem solvers, fixers by nature. By nature. But what happens when you can't solve the problem? What happens when the problem is out of your control? You're so used to being the one who in pride is able to fix things, solve things. And suddenly when you can't, what's left for you to do? Worry. And that pride of us being able to do, us being able to fix, us being able to solve. I I can handle all my own business. I can do all my own stuff. That thing in us when we're not able to, it just feeds that anxiety and that worry. And so Peter is urging us this morning to cast our cares. You throw your cares, you throw your worries, you throw the things that are weighing you down this morning on him. And how do you do that? You pray. You pray. Philippians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there unless you just want to. Philippians chapter 4, I just want to read it to you. He says this, In verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is the exact same thing that Peter is saying, and he's just saying it a different way. He's saying that when we pray is when peace comes, when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you can't solve the problem, or even when you can, pray. And if you pray, if you cast your cares on him, peace will come. So many of us are waiting for peace to come with the resolution that I won't be worried anymore when this situation is resolved. I won't be worried anymore when the the test results come back. I won't be worried anymore when we pass kindergarten and move on into the first grade. I won't be worried anymore when I finally get over that test. I won't be worried anymore when, you know, this boss leaves and gets transferred to a new place and then a new boss comes and maybe that boss will like me a little bit more. You know, when the situation is resolved, I won't be worried anymore. Peace will come when everything is fixed. But right now, some of us have cares. In fact, all of us, you don't just have one care. You don't just have one worry. There's 10 things. There's 20 things that are weighing us down right now. And if you and I just wait for that perfect moment of resolution to be free from worry, we'll never be free. There will always be a care on your back. There will always be something for you to be worried and anxious about. And what Peter is saying is, just cast your cares. Just throw those worries. Just throw those anxieties. Just throw those burdens onto God because he cares for you. And think about the humility that it shows to do that. Think about the humility that it takes to come before God and say, this is the thing that's bothering me right now. And I just want to confess to you, God, that I'm not enough for this thing. 
And so I give it to you because I believe that you are enough. I don't, I don't think that I can take care of this situation. Or even if I can take care of this situation, I can't take care of it the way you can take care of it. So I'm giving it to you in humility. Because he cares for us. You know, I love the story of the prodigal son. In fact, people say that it's the, it's the greatest story ever told. And if you read it, it kind of feels like that. Because no matter what angle you look at it from, there's always something new to find. But I think the story of the prodigal son really shows the heart of what we're talking about this morning. You know, the prodigal son, if you're, you're not familiar with the story, he goes to his father who, who was a, a fairly wealthy. And he says to his father, listen, I don't, I don't want to wait until you die to, to enjoy my life. And you have all this money, and part of that money is going to end up in my hands anyway. So just give me what I've got coming to me right now, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to live my life. Which, even in our culture, would, have, would be incredibly offensive, but even more so in their culture in the first century. And so the father obliges him. The father gives him his inheritance. And the young man goes off, and he just squanders it. He just wastes it away. He spends it on his own pleasures, just like maybe we would do. And he ends up with nothing. No friends, no family. No home, he's in a faraway place. And the only thing he can do to save his life is to take a job feeding pigs. And he comes to his senses, the Bible says, and he ends up coming home. But he comes home not as a son. He, he comes home thinking that he's already lost his position as a son. And so he says, Father, I'm just coming as a servant. I'll just be a servant in your house because the servants have food. The servants have places to sleep. And that was more than I had back in the faraway country. So I'm not coming to you as a son. I'm just coming to you as a servant. But the prodigal son is really a story not just about one son, but two sons. The other son was the older son. The, other sold, uh, the older son was the good son. Right now, you may have a sibling. Raise your hand if you're the good son in your family. I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. Some people did. That was a trick, right? That was a test of pride and humility. The older, the older brother was a good son. You know, and the older brothers, don't they always know that they're the good sons, right? They just always think they're better than everybody else. You should tell them about the podcast and then listen to it this week. Um, and the older son, when the younger son comes home and the father wants to celebrate him, because the father doesn't receive the prodigal son as a servant, he receives him as a son, a son that he thought was dead but now is alive. And so the father throws this huge party for the son. Or the older brother, he's mad. He's mad. And listen, we don't judge him because you'd be mad too. You'd be mad if your younger brother or younger sister just went off and squandered everything that your parents had worked so hard for, wasted it away on their own pleasures, their own selfishness, their own desires. And you would love that long walk home for them in humility, in shame. And wouldn't it bother you after you had been so faithful after you had worked hard in your father's house, after you had done everything that your father and your mother had asked you to do, if he celebrated like that for your younger brother, and he never even noticed you, never said thank you to you, overlooked you, took you for granted, you'd be mad too. But those two sons show us the two ways that we can choose to come to God this morning. We can come to God as somebody who deserves something, somebody who has earned something, somebody who has been better than other people, somebody who feels overlooked, 
and unnoticed and underappreciated. And in our pride, we can come to God just like that older brother did. Or in humility, we can come to God not with everything we think we deserve, but just saying, without your house, I don't have a house. Without your food, I don't have any food. Without your clothes, I don't have any clothes. Without your future, I don't have a future. And I don't come as somebody standing up. I come as somebody kneeling down. And listen, I'd rather come humbly and lowly and in need and be in the house than stand in all my strength and in all my pride and and everything that I think I deserve and be outside the house. And some of us are outside of the house. We think we're so worthy in the eyes of God because all the things that we've done for him, the way we've lived our life, we're not like such and such. We're not like the younger brother. We're not like those who are squandering and wasting their lives. We're the older brothers. We've been working hard. We've been doing everything right. And that very attitude keeps us outside of the presence of God, keeps us away from God because he opposes that heart in us. And I'd rather be the younger son to come in all of my failure and in all of my need, on my knees, saying I'll do whatever it takes to be in the house. Because what you need is in the Father's house. What you want may be out in the field. But what you need only comes through humility. So what about you this morning? As you scan your life, and I scan my life, do you have everything you could ever want? Sure, you could want more. But really, you got about everything you could have ever wanted. But do you have what you need? Because those are usually not the same things. And if you this morning come to a place where you realize I don't have what I need, then let's humble ourselves before God under his mighty hand. It's a safe place because not only does he want you to humble yourself, he wants you to humble yourself so he can give you grace, which is everything you need. Let's pray. The Holy Spirit, stir that in us this morning. Just stir humility in us. Help us to go low. Why don't you just take a second, just in the quietness of your own heart, to to say that to God, whatever, however you want to say that. Just go low before Him. Acknowledge your need. Don't be the older brother and sit in your credit and what you deserve. Father, we go low before you. And we humble ourselves under your right hand, your mighty, powerful, saving hand. We pray today that you would Give us grace. And we receive that. In Jesus' name.